This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Kyle Corbertson. I am the pastoral intern here at Trinity. Um, And it's just a blessing to be able to come this morning to open God's Word, to continue in our series on the book of Samuel. Uh, A little bit of good news for those of you that have been around. We are in chapter 16, which means we are just over halfway through the book of 1 Samuel. Um, So not quite halfway through all of it, but getting there. But we come to this point and we've found... The prophet Samuel, who we've been following mostly up to this point, he is mourning and lamenting and grieving over the rejection of Saul and the state of God's people. Um, And I think it's something that, if we look at all that's happened to him, it's probably a fair reaction. Um, Samuel has seen his predecessor Eli, the priest of God's people, rejected because of his own moral failure. He's seen the people of Israel, under his own tutelage, choose to not want his to follow him and to follow God, but rather to follow a king and be like the rest of the world around them. And then came Saul, God's chosen king that he was so hopeful in, the one that was going to lead them forward, the one that would conquer the Philistines, the Amalekites. He's destroying God's enemies. And then even Saul would fail. And so Samuel comes in mourning with all the failure that is around him, all the leadership failures that he has seen, And I think for all of us, this might feel pretty similar to our own cultural moment, our own moment within Christianity. Um, We've talked a couple weeks ago about leadership failures and all the ones that we've seen, that we've listened to in podcasts, the ones that we read articles about yet another church time and time again, or ones that we have seen even in denominational reports um, from both the SBC as well as our very own PCA. And... It's a struggle that may feel at an, arm's ra- at an arm's length from many of us, but for those of us that it seems personal, it gets more and more personal by the day, it feels like. I know for my own walk, the last couple years have been years of reconciling with some leaders that I grew up under the church and seeing them fail due to narcissistic tendencies or moral failures. It's a time where I've seen and talked through a couple really close friends of the experiences that they've had of both physical and spiritual abuse within the church walls. And it's a time of wrestling with one of my dear friends for a conversation that has gone on for years now about his desire to not need the church anymore. A desire to believe that the failure that he has seen makes the church not worth it. A desire to believe that he is fine with just his own Bible and his own time. And I think these things are so hard Um, to deal with, to walk through, how do we move forward from these? How do you come out of this season of grieving? How do you move forward from the mourning and the failures all around us? And it's something that God is going to show Samuel this morning that we can come out of them because despite all of the leadership failures, they haven't surprised God. They haven't, there's no failed leader that can derail God's plans. And he wants Samuel to shift his focus. He wants Samuel to see as God sees. He wants to see that he is a God that is still Lord over the universe. He's still on his throne and he's still with his people. See, like Samuel, we're going to see that God calls his people out of mourning so that we might experience a renewed hope in him, renewed eyes to see as he sees, and a renewed sense of his presence through the Holy Spirit. Those are three things we're going to look at through our passage this morning of a renewed hope, 
renewed eyes, and a renewed sense of his presence. And so I invite you this morning to stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 13. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. Now, as we look at chapter 16, we open on a point where we see Samuel is grieving. Um, And this word is an intense grief, one that would depict the death of a family member. That's how much grieving Samuel is doing over Saul's rejection. He's crushed. He thought Saul was going to be the guy. He thought this was the time they were going to finally move forward. And then Saul has failed. But see, even in the midst of his mourning, we see God calling him out of it, saying, how long will you grieve? I need you to go. God has a new plan. He wants to move his eyes forward. He wants to show him that God's eyes are seeing something different, a new king. Literally, the words I have provided for myself are actually the words I have seen for myself, a king. God wants Samuel to look and see God's eyes. He wants to look and see what God has planned, the new hope that God is going to instill through this new king. And this hope begins even in the words that he tells Samuel. He begins with, go and fill your horn with oil. Now this is interesting because this will be the first time that a king is ever anointed for Israel through a horn. Saul was actually done his anointing through a flask back in chapter 10, verse 1. And I know for many of us, we're sitting there thinking, well, why are we talking about a horn versus a flask? It really makes no difference. They both carry oil. It's getting poured out. Cool. But this is meant to point us back to something, and it's meant to something that would remind Samuel. It's something that would remind the readers here of something that went on at the beginning of the book. Samuel's own mother, Hannah, in her song and her prophecy at the beginning of Samuel, 
used these words at the end of her prayer. She said, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Now see, initially everyone thought this prophecy was coming true in Saul. You're thinking Saul's killing the Philistines. He's got the Amalekites. He's dashing God's enemies to pieces. He is the first king. This is coming true. But then Saul fails. The hope that you've had and that's been built up is dashed to pieces just like the Philistines. They're starting to believe that, well, maybe the king has failed. Maybe God has failed. Samuel is crushed. But even in these words, God is starting to point him forward. And this hope is beginning to grow. And it grows even more when he continues, go to Jesse the Bethlehemite, the man from Bethlehem. Now this is interesting because Bethlehem is of the tribe of Judah. And if you know, back in Genesis 49, it is promised that from the tribe of Judah will be the king that will reign forever. That's coming from the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem. Now Saul was not from the tribe of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was not anointed with a horn. Saul was anointed with a flask. God is pointing Samuel forward and showing him that Saul was never meant to be the guy. Saul was never meant to be the one that they should hope in. Saul was never meant to be God's chosen king that would deliver his people. Rather, it's to be a son of Jesse. And while we know as we read further that that son ends up being David, it's not meant to point us to David either. It's meant to point all of our hope towards the one who Isaiah 11 refers to as the root of the stump of Jesse. The one that will go on to redeem all of God's people forever. That's Jesus Christ. That is the person our hope was meant to be pointed to, but for the problems for Samuel and the problem for Israel was that they were all nearsighted. They couldn't see what was coming in front of them. They wanted to place their, their hope in the king that was right before them. And so they did it with Saul. And next they're going to do it with David. And then they're going to do it with Solomon. And they're going to keep placing their hope in the king that's directly in front of their feet. And now this becomes a problem when you only look right in front of you. And it's something that Reminds me of uh, my daughter, Ellie Joy, when she was learning how to walk. Now, Ellie Joy has been a great thing in our lives, and she's gotten some things mostly from my wife, which is great for both of us, but one thing she got genetically from me was my above-average-sized head. Uh, the doctor confirmed this for me pretty early on, that she has a 90th percentile head, and she immediately told me it was my fault. But for Ellie Joy, the problem is with an above-average-sized head, it makes walking harder. When you're that little, you've got to balance this big thing on your shoulders. You've got to be able to move in a way that it keeps it upright. Um, and this became much of a problem for Ellie, mostly because when she started taking steps, she was so fascinated by the fact that her feet would move. And so she would try to walk around like this, and she'd just stare at her toes. But the problem is when you have the head that she has, that I have, it gets above your feet, it gets in front of you, and you fall down. Whenever she's staring down, she would fall over, she couldn't walk. But if you could distract her for a minute, if you could get a toy out in front of her, if you could give her to look at her mom or myself as she's moving forward, she's able to walk. She's able to take steps because she's looking where she's supposed to, in front of her. But this is the problem for Israel. They're so fascinated with the kings that are right in front of their toes that they don't see the one that's coming on the horizon. They don't see Christ that is promised to come to them. Instead, they're putting their hope in a king right here, and they fall down. 
The king fails and their hope is dashed once again. Their hopes are crushed because they're misplaced hopes that were never meant to be in an earthly king. They were meant to be in God, the one that could never fail. That is why their hope is failing. And I think the question is begged for us this morning, where is our hope being placed? What are you hoping in this morning? If you're struggling with failed leaderships that have fallen within the church, yeah, it's right to hurt over those things. But the amount of hurt we experience really exposes our hearts. It exposes how much hope we actually place in earthly kings, in the church that's right in front of us, instead of the church that is to be the bride of Christ, instead of the universal church that we talked about this morning, the one that God will unite to himself. And it's exposing our lack of our eyes looking upon the one who we are told in Ephesians 4 is the head of that church, the one that we are built up together towards, and that is Christ Jesus. See, like Israel, it's tempting to look down. It's tempting to put our hope in the leaders of today. It's tempting to put our hope in what we see in front of us. But God wants us to look forward, to hope in something better. He wants us to look up. He wants you to look up and see the one that is coming on the horizon, the one whose hope and whose plan will never fail, and that is Christ Jesus. And that's what he's trying to get to Samuel this morning in in this chapter. But not only is he trying to show Samuel that he needs not just a new hope, but he needs new eyes to see as God sees. Because he needs him to anoint a king. And so Samuel shows up. He's here to anoint the king. He gets Jesse and all the sons together. And here they come to the sacrifice. And he looks and he sees the first one, Eliab, the firstborn. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But God says, no, this isn't him. Rather, God goes on even further and says, the Lord has rejected him. That seems like pretty intense language when you realize, like, this is just him coming forward. He's not even, like, a king yet. He's not in charge, but God has already rejected him. But this language is meant to point us to what Samuel's problem was. See, Eliab was depicted just like Saul was. And God's trying to keep Samuel from making the same mistake twice. He said, you chose Saul because he... He was chosen, but you guys all put your hope in him because he looked like a king. He was tall. He had good stature. He looked like a mighty warrior, one that could lead you into battle and defeat other kings. That's what everybody wanted. That's what Samuel wanted when he looked at Eliab. That's what you wanted at this time. You needed someone that would go defeat the enemies around you. That's why the Philistines will follow a behemoth named Goliath because he is destructive in war. He's a mighty warrior. You look later to other great men of valor. You look at William Wallace, the great Scott, the one in the movie Braveheart. Now, the reason people followed William Wallace into war and were willing to follow him was not just because Mel Gibson makes great speeches. But the reality is, historians tell us that the actual William Wallace was between the height of six foot five and six foot seven. He was a very tall man, but it's even more impressive when you realize that the average height around him was five foot six. He's over a foot taller than everybody else around him. We're actually told that the sword he carried was longer than many of the men are tall that he was fighting. So it's no secret that he's just mowing people down. Like William Wallace is destroying the enemy. People want to follow this mighty warrior. They want to follow a king like that. Samuel wanted that to be their king. That's what he was looking at. That's what he thought a king would be. But God says, I don't need a warrior. 
I don't need someone that's strong. I don't need someone that's tall. I've got all the power I need in myself. All I need is someone whose heart is willing to follow me, to go after me, and to listen to my word. And so he rejects Eliab because Eliab's heart was wrong. We'll see later that Eliab proves to not want to follow God, but he proves to be critical. He's someone that is not willing to follow God in the midst of enemies. And so Samuel's instructed to keep moving past him, and then past Aminadab, and then past Shema, and then past the other seven brothers. And so he looks at Jesse, and Samuel says, well, is, is there anybody left? Are there any more of your sons? And Jesse responds, he says, well, there remains yet the youngest. And that word youngest actually is the word smallest, but in English we don't really have a great uh, word to describe the disdain that comes when you say it this way. Um, but it'd be the best translation we might have is if Jesse were to say, well, we still have the runt. We still have the brother that nobody cares about, the puny one that's out in the field, the one that nobody wants. He's not even considered one of the seven sons, a number that means completion in their culture. David is the outcast, the puppy that you don't pick up. And yet this is who God chooses, because that's how God works. God doesn't care about the outward appearance. He doesn't care about the things of man, but he's only looking at his heart. God continuously chooses the younger over the older, the weak over the strong, and the meek over the obvious choice. We looked at it in our, first, our New Testament passage this morning in 1 Corinthians when it says, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God doesn't need another Saul that's going to erect a monument for himself. He doesn't need an Eliab that's going to look great and bring praise on his own name. He needs a man like David that's going to bring the praise and the glory to God. And so that's why we see God continuously, time and time again, not make the obvious choice. He chooses Abel over Cain, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over his brothers. He chooses Ephraim over Manasseh, old and barren Sarah over young and fertile Hagar. He chooses rejected and unloved Leah over the beloved and beautiful Rachel. God chooses not based on appearance, but only on their heart. And God knows our hearts. While this verse may seem so familiar to all of us, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, is that good news or bad news when we hear that this morning? You see, the reality is a lot of us spend a lot of time on our outward appearances. A lot of us spend a lot of time on things that can be seen. So many people go to spend hours at the gym eating properly to stay fit and healthy and live long and prosperous lives. We've got people that work tirelessly at careers in order to earn that respect of their peers and to set themselves up for financial security for them and their families. And while none of these things are wrong, it begins to beg the question of, well, how much time have you spent on your heart? I heard a pastor say it this way once that, what would it look like if your outward appearance depended on the amount of time you spent on your heart? Would you still look fit and healthy? Or would you look like someone that's been sitting on the couch all day eating Twinkies and never getting up? Would you still be successful in your career or would you look like someone that's unemployed and swimming in credit card debt? The reality is we know that God looks at the heart, but do we ever think about what he sees when he looks at us? Are we ever willing to spend the time investing on our own hearts? 
Because the reality is, if we're not willing to look at it for ourselves, we're also going to do the same when we look at other people. We're going to continue to elevate people that we believe are the Eliabs, the ones that look so good. Mike Cosper in the uh, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, he's the narrator, and he makes the comment early on, he says, how are we supposed to reconcile with that we continue to choose leaders whose charisma outpaces their character? And he asked that question, and I remember hearing it the first time and thinking, wow, that's a really profound and deep question to wrestle with. But the answer is simple. The answer is 1 Samuel 16, 7. We choose based on the outward appearance. We choose the one with the charisma. We choose the one that looks good. We choose the Eliab that will be a great pastor, a great leader, a great politician. These are the people we want to puff up in society. These are the people we want to go after and follow rather than taking the time to understand their own hearts. Samuel did it too. But if you notice, the only reason Samuel was able to get past Eliab to choose not him, not his brothers, but choose one that's not even there as a choice to be made is because God told him so. He listened to God's word. He was spent enough time on his own heart that when God spoke to him, he was able to respond. He spent enough time that he would know when God's word was coming to him that when it was time to choose a king, he would choose the one that God would say, this is he. See, if we want to avoid heartbreak, we want to avoid this cycle of mourning, this cycle of elevating leadership that fails around us, we have to look first at our own hearts. We have to look at the amount of time we spend investing in our hearts instead of investing in outward appearances. We've got to be following the words of the Proverbs and hiding God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin, so that we might not fail, so we might not puff up those that are not worth following. That way, when we are listening to God's word in the scriptures, when we are writing it on our hearts, that the day comes when it matters most, when we really need to make the right decision, we're following God's heart. We're following God's word. We have eyes to see the way forward, the way that he is choosing and preparing ahead of time for us. That's what Samuel is learning, that it is not about what he sees, but it is about listening to God's word and moving forward in his choices. And now I know that a lot of this feels like forward thinking for a time that might feel like a lot of pain. And I'm sure there's some people in this room that, yeah, you've gone through a lot of hardship and failed leadership and it hurts. There's a lot of pain. Maybe you're thinking this is all trivial. Yeah, it's great for a hope that's to come when Jesus comes back. Yeah, it's great to look forward as to how to prepare my heart so I can make God's choices next time. But what am I supposed to do right now? What good news is there in the fact that I have experienced this hurt, this abuse, these things that have come around me through this failed leadership? Well, the best news of it is not that we have a renewed hope or not that we have renewed eyes, but that we have a renewed sense of God's presence with us. Now, if you notice when David was anointed, it says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, this presence of the Holy Spirit is very different to the one that Saul experienced. Saul was given momentary experiences, and actually, if you read the next verse, you'll see that it is taken from him forever. Saul does not have the Holy Spirit with him forever, like David does. But the way that the Holy Spirit comes upon David is the same way that we are told in Scripture that we receive the Holy Spirit when we come to know Jesus, that we are given the Holy Spirit irrevocably. And this word, irrevocably, should hopefully spark some light bulbs for people that have been around because it was the way we talked about 
the Holy Spirit in our catechism question a couple weeks ago. We've been walking through the New City Catechism at the time where we did the Apostles' Creed this morning, and the last couple weeks have been all about the Holy Spirit. And a couple weeks ago, we answered it with the fact that the Holy Spirit is the person of God given to us as believers irrevocably. And this is why we go through these catechism questions. They're meant to point us to the truths of Scripture. And the one it points us to is John 14. It says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The comfort we have in times of pain and sorrow is that we are given the Holy Spirit, one that will never leave us nor forsake us. And for honest, that's the deepest desire of most of our hearts. We just want to know that there's someone there that will hold our hand through life's hardships. Now, for my wife Morgan, this desire was exposed pretty early on in our marriage. Uh, we got married in 2018. We were living in St. Louis, and we chose to go on our honeymoon six months later. Um, and it was actually on the flight back from our honeymoon, we're on our way back to our home in St. Louis, uh, that this desire in her heart was exposed to me. Uh, we were on a plane, sitting there watching Netflix, sharing headphones, and just watching a show, having a good time. And then our plane hits some above-average turbulence. And so it's bumping quite a bit, and it's a little bit freaky at times, but in my head, it's no big deal. Keep watching the show. We're good. But in Morgan's head, our plane was going down. And so Morgan actually reaches over across me, shuts off the iPad, pulls the headphones out, and basically grabs my hand and says something along the lines of, if we're going to die, you're going to sit here, you're going to hold my hand, look me in the eyes until we do. And while this is a story that I still laugh about today and I love to poke fun at with Morgan, um, the reality is that's a lot of our longings, isn't it? We just want someone that will be with, there, with us to hold our hand, look us in the eyes, and be with us to the end. And that's what God gives us in the Holy Spirit. He gives us a presence that we have even when we don't know the reasons why or what God has for us next. If you notice, David was never actually told that he was anointed king. Samuel came under the pretext that it's a sacrifice because he was fearful that Saul would kill him. If he had known that David was to be the next king, Saul would have gone and killed David rather than employ him in the palace later on. Many scholars believe that the only people that actually know what's going on here is Samuel and God himself. To David, it's unknown. And so, yeah, it's a great moment. He gets anointed by God's special prophet. But what happens next? The sacrifice ends. Samuel goes home. David's back to working with the sheep in the pasture. David's left alone. It might have been a special moment, but the reality is, what did it change? David doesn't know the reasons of God. And maybe you feel like David this morning. Maybe you had this great moment when you accepted Christ You felt like a king, but now you feel like you've been abandoned in the sheep fields. Maybe your own experience of God or the church has not lived up to your expectations. Maybe it hasn't taken away the pain of what life has thrown at you. And the reality is, while I may never be able to relate to your specific pain, we have a Savior that can relate to our pain. Jesus came not as a king, but he was born in a stable. The only crown he ever wore was one made of thorns, meant to pierce his skull, and have blood drip down his face. 
He was rejected by his very own people, beaten, flogged, mocked, scorned, stripped naked, and hung on a cross with the lowest criminals of society. But our Savior did that so that he could ransom you. Our Savior did that so that you might know him. Our Savior did that so that you would have the presence of the Holy Spirit who will be with you every single day as you walk through life and all that goes on. And our Savior did that so that when all hope is lost, we can join with David, understanding that we have this presence of the Holy Spirit, and we can speak the words that he speaks in Psalm 23, that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even when it feels like everything around you has failed, you don't know the way forward, you have no idea the reasons or the plans of God. We can know that we have the very presence of God walking forward with us through it all. Now, church, as we close this morning, I'll be the first one to confess that when we look at the state of leadership failures around us, that especially in the church, it hurts. And I can't tell you the reason for them. I can't tell you the heart behind them, but I can tell you that Scripture is very clear that we have a God that is sovereign over it all, that we have a God that is not surprised, that we have a God that is still in control, and that through Christ we have a renewed hope, that through Christ we are able to examine our own hearts and hear His Word, and that through Christ we can rest knowing that God has not abandoned us. God is here to walk with us, through all of it, each and every day of our lives, as we press on towards that day, that we will rejoice, that there will be no more failure, and that we will be able to turn and hear the elders of heaven tell us the words that they speak in Revelation 5.5, that we can weep no more, because behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are that promised king of the tribe of Judah, the clan from Bethlehem, Jesse's son and the son of David, that you are the promised hope that we are able to look forward to still, that while we can look back and see what you have done for us, we can look forward knowing that you're coming once again. That God, in the midst of the world around us, the midst of our pain, the midst of our sorrow, you have given us comfort through your very presence in the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we might know you deeper this morning, that we might look to your word and examine our own hearts, that we might look to you in a way that we would understand how to move forward, how to look at ourselves and those around us and see as you see, that your word would be written on our hearts, that your truth would ring forth in our ears, in our minds, and through our mouths. God, allow us to sense your presence with us even through life's greatest trials, through our hardest decisions, and through our crushing defeats. Lord, let your church be one that is built up together in love as each of us do our part to press on towards you that is the head of your church. And that we would move forward to the day that your bride is united to you once again at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.